Just want to make one uh, quick announcement that I forgot to tell Andrew about, but on uh, May 13th to the 14th, there's a, uh, a conference in um, and Escondido, Westminster Seminary, it's a Ligonier Conference. Uh, I signed up for that uh, to go, and I just want to encourage you, if you want to join me at the conference, it's uh, May 13th and 14th uh, coming up. And uh, the topic is standing uh, on a firm foundation, standing firm um, in the gospel, of course. And so uh, the more I was thinking about this because of even the passage we read in John uh, 15, where he says, you know, I love you, but the world will hate you on account of him. And the more we look at the world and we, the more we see how things are shifting and turning, there's a stronger and stronger reality that we are going totally against the current. And if you can't see that, then you haven't been watching, right? The current of the world is headed in a completely different direction uh, than God would desire for his creation, uh, what God demands of his creation. And so we as believers, uh, we need to be able to stand firm in Christ and stand firm in the truth and hold the line, as it were, right, to be faithful witnesses to Christ and to love him, abide in him. And so I think this conference will be helpful uh, for that reminder for us. And so May 13th and 14th, uh, you can sign up and um, I'll be there. And so we can sit together and just uh, uh, learn together, okay? Um, but now we have the privilege of going uh, back to the Gospel of John. And I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 6. Um, John chapter 6, we've been looking at... Um, Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and how that was a picture and a sign of the identity of Christ as the bread of life uh, that came down from heaven to give life uh, to those who believe in him. And of course, uh, many of those who were there and witnessed uh, the miracle that he performed misinterpreted it. They, they saw Jesus as one who could fulfill their earthly appetites, but Jesus has been explaining in John 6 and, and then 22 on to the end of the chapter that the whole purpose of the sign was to remind them that God had provided manna, the true manna from heaven in Christ, the bread of life, and that receiving Christ and believing in him is the means of being saved and receiving eternal life. Uh, that's what Christ came to do, and so we looked uh, in the last couple weeks, we've been looking at Jesus's explanation of that, and this morning uh, we will continue looking at that in verses um, 41 to 40 to 46 will be our passage for this morning. Uh, before I read um, uh, from John chapter 6, uh, join me in a word of prayer to ask for God's blessing. Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege that we have, again, of opening your word and hearing, hearing from your word. Thank you, Father, that you have uh, given us the truth uh, about who your beloved son is. You have not hidden that from the world, but you have made it evident to the world. You have made it evident through his life and uh, the, the miraculous uh, birth, the being born of a virgin, being born according to your perfect plan from 
uh, from history past, even to the very city that he would be born in and the city he would be raised in. And then for all of the miracles and the way that Christ testified before the watching world um, in terms of his nature and identity being the one from above, the, the word made flesh dwelling among us. And we have been the recipients of the testimony of your word from believers who have seen and, and touched and handled him and, and were able to even eat with him and walk with him, who bore witness to these truths, and John the evangelist being among them. And, and we thank you for the testimony that he has given us here of this account of our Lord's discourse on the bread of life. And we ask that you would enable us to, um, to see clearly and to hear with humility that you would uh, transform our hearts and our minds and help us to understand your word more clearly. Uh, may we not be found among those who rejected him and were in unbelief, but may we be found believing and trusting and hoping in Christ, who alone can give us eternal life. And we ask for your blessing, O Holy Spirit, on your word. May you accompany it with power and with wisdom and with strength. And may you direct us as our helper and our guide. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let us hear from God's word again in uh, picking up in verse 25 of John chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him. 
because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. This is the reading of God's word. One of the truths that the Bible emphasizes, if you just read through the whole Bible, you will see one of the truths the Bible emphasizes is that mankind, men and women, created in the image of God, in our fallen condition, salvation must begin with God. And the reason it must begin with God is because we see in the scriptures a testimony of the condition of man, of our condition as sinners. Jeremiah 17, 9 describes the heart of man as deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's a description of our heart. Deceitful above all things. That's a powerful statement. And I think if you've lived for any time on this earth, you realize just how deceitful your own heart can be and how desperately sick it really is. Then you read passages like Romans 3, 9 to 18. Paul says in that passage, I'm paraphrasing, but you can read through it, that there is... No one who is righteous. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, Paul says. No, not one. Desperately sick, above all, Paul says, not one person does good or seeks God. It is not a pretty picture of mankind that the scriptures give. It's not a feel-good sentiment that you might think would make humanity proud. We are not a pleasant creation to look upon in our fallen estate. We are exactly the opposite. It's amazing how Hallmark can take humanity and turn it into a, a Hallmark movie. When you really take humanity and make it look so pretty and good and everything's nice and happy, and there are good graces of God in life, but if you really just boil down humanity to their 
to their core. And if that's what you put on the screen, you would see it is not very pretty. And what is really interesting is the Hallmark movie days are long gone, aren't they? And what do we see displayed on the screen nowadays? You are seeing more and more and more and more a reflection of what humanity really is. And the more you see it, the more you realize that the scriptures are absolutely true. Long gone are the, the underdog movies. My favorite was always Rocky, where the unexpected contender, he ends up overcoming the odds of winning, and he overcomes it by his own willpower and strength. And the fact is, the scriptures say it's not a pretty picture, it's not a Hallmark movie, and you're all underdogs. Every one of you, each and every one of us are all underdogs, sinful humanity, and the fact of the matter is, the scripture says, you lose without a savior. If you don't have a savior, you lose. You will not win. You will not overcome your flesh and your sin. You will not be able to make it into the kingdom of heaven. You will not have good works enough to earn your way into God's presence. You won't do enough good deeds. You won't be able to wipe away and wash away all of the evil that we have done. That is a truth that is inconvenient and uncomfortable for many and really most in the world. But it is a truth nonetheless of the reality of our condition. It may be hard to swallow that truth, especially when it comes to being good enough to be saved, but we have to proclaim it. We may want to contribute something, at least faith, we think. If nothing else, God, surely the faith that we can produce within ourselves will be something that we can contribute to our salvation. But the fact of the matter is that the scripture also says that that sin of man is so deep and it is so corrupting of our nature that man and women, men and women are even incapable of, in their own strength, of converting themselves and of producing faith in Jesus Christ. In our fallen estate, there is not one person who wills good or does the good which salvation requires, and that includes placing faith in Jesus Christ. God created men and women, and he created Adam and Eve free to choose in the garden, didn't he? They were free to choose. He said, do not eat 
from this tree that is in the midst of the garden, but from any other tree you may freely eat. And they were free to choose to eat from any other tree, but they chose to eat from the one tree that God had commanded them not to eat. And then they fell in their sin, and all of humanity fell within them, within them, in Adam. And now that we are in Adam, in sin, as sinners, that corruption that belonged to them now belongs to us, and it's so deep that we now still freely choose, do we not? Sinners freely choose. They have free will. But what is the problem with sinners and free will is this, that when left to ourselves, we always freely choose evil. We freely choose whether or not we place our faith in Christ and believe in him or choose to reject him. We freely choose as sinners. The problem is as sinners, apart from God's work, we always freely choose to reject Jesus Christ and to not believe in him. And God says, those who reject Jesus freely choosing to reject Jesus of their own accord will face the consequences of that rejection and will incur, incur a judgment that is rightfully theirs for rejecting Jesus. You are responsible for your rejection and your unbelief. Now the question is this, if that is so much the nature of sinners apart from Christ, if we are so incapable of choosing to come to Christ for salvation, and if our desires are by nature bent away from him so that we always freely choose against him, how did we in this room, those of you who did come to Christ, how did we come to Christ and why? How was our will changed from unbelief and rebellion toward belief and submission to Christ? Why couldn't these Jews see what Jesus intended them to see in this miraculous sign? Why couldn't they see the truth and why instead did they conclude something very different about Jesus from what Jesus wanted them to know? Well, we saw the first part of this in chapter 6, verse 35 to 40 last week. Many who saw Jesus and witnessed his miracles still did not believe and Jesus made the point that salvation through him, the bread of life, is grounded in the sovereign choice of God, in the sovereign will of God. This is why he said to them when they came to him and they didn't believe, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In other words, Jesus is saying, the reason you don't believe is because that initial act of salvation, of coming to Jesus, begins with God's work, God's grace towards sinners. 
Jesus says, you being left to your own desires and your own abilities will not come to me. Like, Nicodem- like he said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so these people who are rejecting Jesus and living in unbelief, if they are going to come to Jesus, it must begin with God the Father giving a people to Jesus. There's no other way. God chooses according to his will before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, to give a particular sinner to Jesus as a love gift. And as a result, that sinner comes to Jesus and receives eternal life. And what does it mean to come to Jesus? Coming to Jesus simply means it's synonymous with believing in him. The whole context shows believing and coming to Jesus throughout the chapter, they're one and the same thing. But how does one then come to do that? So God chooses, and then in the course of life, How then does one move from hearing about Jesus to faith in him? Why do some move from hearing about Jesus to faith and others do not? Intelligent or uneducated, well-behaved or tyrants, solid family upbringings or broken families, children that are catechized or children that are ignorant of the truth of God's word for their whole life. Regardless of people's backgrounds and circumstances, there are some people that respond to the gospel and some who do not. So why is that? Why is that? Besides the fact that it's God giving people to Jesus from before the foundation of the world, but as we witness life and we go through the course of life, How does it happen that someone responds? Is it because a person, one is smarter or has a better reasoning capability? Is it in the genes of people to believe it? Is it just that one person is more spiritual by nature and so he realizes the importance of the gospel? If you've ever witnessed for even a moment on the street, and you want to share the gospel with someone, you'll hear this so often, where you want to tell them about Christ and talk about the gospel, and they'll say, I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. I like spiritual things, right? And yet, when you give them the ultimate message of spiritual message about Christ, they ultimately reject it. And so being spiritual, this mystical feeling, does that, is that the basis of someone accepting the gospel? Not at all. Some are more spiritual, quote-unquote, than others. Maybe it's because God does something unique in the lives of those whom he saves. How about that? Maybe God did something in the life of a person that caused them to respond to Jesus in faith, and that is the answer. Every one of us here 
at some point in our life, if you've placed your faith in Christ, at some point in your life, you are here because God gave you to the Son. And then at some point in your life, you heard the gospel and you were drawn to it by the Father through the Holy Spirit in such a way that you necessarily responded to it with faith. Does that make sense? God gave you. Then God called you. Then you responded in faith. If God doesn't call you in this special way, if God doesn't work to draw you to himself through the preaching of his word, if God didn't act upon you in that way, would you have believed? Would you? No. You never would have believed had not God drawn you to himself. You weren't forced to do it. You were made willing and able by God to believe where prior to his drawing of you to Christ, you were not able. That to me, when that truth of God's word began more and more to pop off the pages of scripture and I realized God's sovereign hand in salvation from beginning to end, my response, and still is today, and some of you have even shared this with me, why me? Out of all the people that have walked on the face of the earth, why did he save a sinner like me? And you know what? I don't know. I don't know. Because the more you look at yourself, the more you realize nothing good dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in any of us. And yet, he saved you. Why? I don't know, but I do know this. That God the Father, from before the foundation of the world, loves his son for all eternity past. And he wants to honor his son. And he saved me out of love to give to his son so that his son may be glorified and honored. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Are you? Aren't you okay with the fact 
that God chose to redeem you not because of you, but because of the honor and the glory due to his son. And we get to be a part of that beautiful plan of redemption. And from beginning to end, it is God who works in us because he gave us to Christ to then call us when we have no ability of, of ourselves to call us to then place our faith in Jesus. In theological terms, this is what is called effectual calling. The unless there in verse 44, because we're looking at verses 44 to 40, 41 to 46, not only was our salvation the divine will of God, but it's also the divine work of God. He draws us to come to Jesus in faith. This is what Jesus says to them in verse 44. They, they aren't believing. Here they are grumbling about what he's teaching them, grumbling that he says, I've come down from heaven. They're grumbling at him, and Jesus says to them, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That unless there is another way of saying he's excluding coming to Jesus in any other fashion or under any other circumstance. That's what the word unless is. It's an exclusion word. Saving faith which is something we willingly do eventually, does not come into play until God has acted in drawing people to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. No one, not one person can the ability, come the act to Jesus unless the Father draws him. It's the only way any of us have ever come to faith in Jesus is that God gave us to Christ and God drew us to Jesus. And of course, when people hear this message that Jesus so clearly says here, you know what the reaction of most people to do when you say that to them? Grumble, isn't it? We hear that message and we grumble. And we say, no, that can't be. That's not the way it is. I did something. I contributed. I added. I had some part in this and we grumble and these people, when they heard Jesus talk about him being the bread of life and coming down from heaven and the will of God in salvation and his sovereign part and authority in salvation, they too grumbled about him. 
They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And in that phrase, all that Jesus taught prior is is part of what he was teaching them. They cling, though, to that specific part because they can't even make sense of the rest of it. So they just cling to the part where Jesus is saying he came down from heaven and they grumble at it. And that word grumbling, if you know your Old Testament, it should take your mind back to the same spirit that Israel displayed in the wilderness, shouldn't it? Do you remember when they were in the wilderness and God delivered them out of Egypt and they're now in the wilderness and there's this salvation and they complained and grumbled before and after the manna was provided? God provided for them, and before he gave them manna, they were grumbling, they were hungry, they wanted to go back to Egypt where they had leeks and and vegetables and food, and they didn't want to be in the wilderness. Moses, you brought us out here to die. Grumble, 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 constant grumble, grumble, grumble. And then God gives them manna, and the manna comes from heaven, and God says, I'm going to provide for you, my children, in the wilderness and I'm going to sustain you and I'm going to give you life and I'm going to carry you through and then they picked up the manna and they ate the manna and when their bellies were filled with the manna and they were being sustained they grumble they grumble at the manna give us meat God gives them meat enough to come out of their nostrils Scripture says, and they grumbled. They grumbled. This is not enough. This is not a provision. This is not enough for us, God. What are you doing to us? Why is this happening to us? The whole congregation of the people of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 16.2. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, God is so gracious. Come near before the Lord, he says, for he has heard your grumbling. You know why they grumbled? Because the manna couldn't quite sustain them. They grumbled because the meat wasn't enough to satisfy. They grumbled because God gave them these things and it wasn't enough. And so here comes Jesus, the true manna from heaven, and he is right before them. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life, the true manna of God, and I give myself to you so that you might be satisfied that you might receive eternal life. And Jesus says, I'm right here before you. And they still don't believe. And what do they do? They grumble. And so Jesus says, he's, he's not discouraged. He's not overwhelmed. He, he realizes and he wants to tell them, that the reason that you, I know that you are not yet believing and the reason you are not coming to me is 
that the Father hasn't drawn you to me. You see, they looked at Jesus and they said, they said, they looked and they could only see in physical sense and they said, he's just like us. He's a, a man from Galilee. He is the despised man from, Naz, from the despised uh, city of Nazareth. And in verse 42, they say, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Who does he think he is? We know who Jesus' parents are. We know who his dad is. What right does Jesus have to claim God as his father? What right does this man, Jesus, have to claim that his family origin is from heaven? They do not believe what John believes when he wrote this gospel in the prologue, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus knew this about them, which is why when you read through the gospel, you'll see he repeatedly tells them that they do not know his heavenly father. He says, you do not know my father. He says it to them over and over again. Chapter 4, verse 22, chapter 8, verse 19, verse 55 in chapter 8. You can write these down if you want. Chapter 15, verse 21, chapter 16, verse 3, chapter 17, verse 25. Jesus tells them, you do not know my father. And yet they're complaining and they're saying, yes, we do. We know your, your father's Joseph. Jesus says, you don't know my father. In fact, he even tells them that not only do they not know his father, but you know what else Jesus says? Jesus says, I know your father better than you know my father. You know what, you know what he's referring to? Jesus is saying, you are of your father, the devil. And I know your father better than you know mine. Because Jesus came out of heaven. Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus knows that they do not believe in him because they do not know his father because his father has not drawn them to Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, 42 to 45, if God were your father, if God were your father, you would love me. Not maybe, possibly, if God were your father, you would love me. There's no, there's no maybe, there's no question. The response Jesus says there is, this would be the response, and here's why. For I came from God, and I am here. That's what he says. I came, not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say, Jesus says? 
Why don't you get it? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That's another way of saying you just want to grumble. You are of your father, the devil. Don't miss this fact that this is Jesus talking, okay? Jesus is saying this to people on the earth that he sees with his eyes. He is talking to them, and he says, Why don't you understand what I'm saying to you? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe. You see, Jesus sees and he tells them when he hears them grumbling, he says, do not grumble among yourselves. If you're trying to figure out this whole thing about me, Jesus says, and you're fighting amongst yourselves, you're trying to sort it out, how does it make sense, how does it fit, isn't it Joseph, his father, and isn't, wasn't he born in Bethlehem and then grew up in Nazareth, and what is all this stuff about Jesus? So he's saying he's from heaven. None of this makes sense to me. I don't get it, and that's what they're doing. They're grumbling, they're mad, they don't get it, and Jesus says, don't grumble. Stop. Stop trying to sort it all out according to human wisdom, Jesus says. Because Jesus knows that their refusal to come to him must be overcome by an act of the Father. And so verse 44, he says, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father draws him. In verse 37, he said, the Father gives. And now in verse 44, he says, the Father draws. And unless the Father draws, you will never place your faith in Jesus Christ. The giving and the drawing of the Father are selective now, some people, when they hear the word draw, when you hear the word draw, maybe your mind goes to the word enticing or persuading. Does it? Is that how you look at that verse when you say, well, unless the Father draws him, that just means wooing or enticing or drawing. Some people will try to interpret this verse that way because they can't stand the fact that God is sovereign over salvation. But the fact is, is that this word draw is not a wooing or a enticing or a persuading in the way like a bee would be enticed to honey or a fly would be enticed to garbage. Jesus is not saying no one can come to me 
unless some preacher persuades him or unless the father woos him or entices him to Jesus. No, the word that is used here in in the Greek for the word draw is not woo or entice, but it actually means to compel or even to haul in. It's the same word that was used in Acts when Paul and Silas, remember they preach the gospel and this, this girl is healed of her demon possession and the people who, who owned that girl and her fortune telling or whatever, they became so mad that she was healed that they lost their financial gain and it says that they were dragged into the marketplace before they were thrown into prison. That's the word that's used, same word. They were dragged into the market, the marketplace. They didn't woo them into the marketplace. They compelled them to come by a force that was greater than their own. And when I was reading and studying this, I took my mind back to a, to a sermon I'd heard many years ago, and I listened to it again the other day. It was by R.C. Sproul, and he, he told this story of an experience he had at a debate in a seminary and it was a um, Methodist seminary. Um, its theology was not Calvinistic. It was more uh, Pelagian, like a man's authority, Arminian. And he's debating the head of the New Testament department about this doctrine of, of election. And they were looking at this verse. And R.C. Sproul tells a story that the guy challenged the interpretation. And he found some old ancient Greek literature where he, he said, this literature, this word is used of drawing water out of a well in some ancient text. And so he said, R.C. Sproul to him, when you get water out of a well, do you compel it to come out of the well? So he's saying that word's wrong. That translation is wrong. And so and R.C. Sproul in his humor uh, he says, well, let me ask you a question. He says, when you get water out of a well, do you woo it? Do you say, here, water, 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 come up out of the well? That was so funny, I thought. That's so good. And, and of course, the answer is no. You don't woo the water out of the well. Here, water, 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 come out. You, you have to drag it out. You have to pull it out. You, you need to haul that water, because the water is inert, it's not, move, it's not moving, you can't woo it up. And so, Jesus uses this word compel because he knows our human condition is so fallen and corrupt and our hearts are so hardened by sin toward the things of God that the only way these people will come to him is the work of the Father. And I want to tell you this morning, if you've come to Christ, it's because the Father in heaven gave you to Jesus. And it's because he drew you to him. God overcame your grumbling and hardness of heart 
And that should be so humbling and so comforting. It should cause us to rise up in our hearts to honor God and to praise him. And it should also be a securing truth to you. Because if he who began a good work in you, what does he say? He who began a good work in you will do what? He will complete it in the end. And so this is not a doctrine that should make anyone proud or lifted up. This is a truth that Jesus teaches that should cause us to rejoice and to be humble before God. And so, real quickly, this is how Jesus explains how the drawing takes place. He, he says in verse 45, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then verse 45, he points them to the scripture. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from who? From the Father comes to me. So what Jesus is saying is like exactly what he says in the Gospel of John about the Holy Spirit coming to teach them. The way the Father draws you is not by dragging you in unwillingly, but the way he teaches us and the way he drew us to Christ so that we placed our faith in him is by teaching us from his word and the Holy Spirit specifically coming in and giving us a new heart and a new understanding of who Christ is. This is what the new covenant promises were. And you can look if you want. I'm just going to read it. But Jeremiah 31 to, 31 to 34, Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 44, the new covenant promise, Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he says, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God does this work. Ezekiel 36, 24 to 26. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
can you place faith in Jesus if you have a heart of stone? No. You must first have a heart of what? Flesh. And who is the one who gives a heart of flesh according to that passage? God does. This is what Jesus is talking about. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have you placed your faith in him? Because this does not remove the reality that you must place your faith in Jesus. Jesus still calls you to believe in him. And you are still responsible if you reject him. You are still responsible before God if you refuse to come to Jesus. But if you have come, it's because God's love and mercy and grace has been shown to you. And you, beloved, should be thankful that God has willed and worked in such a way that he has redeemed you. And never forget it. Don't take offense at it. Be thankful for it. If you believe, it's because God loved you first. And if you are still here and you have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus still says, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and he says, I will give you rest. You are still called to come to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, you will receive eternal life. Don't delay. Don't wait. Come to Jesus and give glory to God for the great things he has done. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that, that you have redeemed us and you have saved us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not because of anything good or righteous in us, but because of your great love for your son and your love for us. Uh, we are so grateful that you who have began a good work in us, will complete it until the day of redemption. We are grateful, O oh God, that you drew us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we heard the voice of our shepherd, we knew who it was that was calling us. It was our shepherd who came to redeem us and to guide us and to lead us and to save us. And Lord Jesus, we know that that is you. And we don't desire to look to another. We don't, Lord Jesus, desire desire to follow another so-called shepherd, but we want to follow you and live for you. For you have laid down your life for your sheep. You have laid down your life for us, and you have given your flesh that we might live through you. Oh God, we know that there are many, like there were even in those days, who still were yet to believe whose hearts remained hardened and whose rebellion persisted really even until the end of their days. And, and that saddens us and it saddens us even today to know that there may be those 
here, even in this room, whose heart is still hardened against you, who still refuses to come to you and to believe on your name and to trust you for the salvation that you offer. And we ask, O oh God, as you have done for us, that you would give them a heart of flesh. And in giving them a heart of flesh, they would see more clearly now the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the veil would be lifted from their eyes, that they would see their condition and how they are naked and destitute before you, that they would feel the weight of their sin, that they would understand that without a Savior, they stand condemned before a holy God. We know that that truth and that revealing can only come by your Spirit, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would make that truth known to each and every one who is in this place today, and that their eyes would be opened, that each of our eyes that have not yet been opened would be opened, and that we would be drawn to Jesus. For those of us who have come, Father, we thank you. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for teaching us so patiently. We thank you for giving us your word and helping us by the helper, the Holy Spirit, to understand it. We thank you for placing your law in our hearts and for giving your spirit to us as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. All of this is from you, and we thank you for it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. We give you all the glory in your name. Amen.